thing. And all God's faithful, beloved saints said, Amen. Amen. Mike, you are now an elder in the Church of Jesus Christ. Welcome. You didn't ask me why. I took it. Oh, Mike said, you didn't ask me why I became an elder. Let me give you a microphone. Mike, why did you want to become an elder? I've been eager to tell you this story. So, really eager. Um, not quite two years ago, we came, uh, moved here, and then came to this church for the first time. We haven't, we didn't go to any other church. The Lord led us right to this church. Um, no, I promise I wouldn't cry, but. <laughs> Yeah, everybody else is crying, Mike. You're fine. Uh, we walked in the door, and uh, you guys were so accepting, loving, that we said, we want to be a part of that church. If you're already sensing the power of the Holy Spirit here, you're missing something, I'm telling you. We want to give honor to that church. We want to belong to that power and that, that power that's going on. So Eunice is, I'm going to give you an example. Eunice has been sick for a couple of weeks. She has received more calls from the ladies of this church. Karen called. Betty called. Carrie called, Debbie called, Joy called. Karen sent a text, a beautiful text to her. Just amazing. I don't know if you've heard anything, but thank you very much. So I want to tell you that personally, I'm against isolation. The body of Christ is not a part of isolation. If you don't ever get a welcome or a smile from me, um, just give me a slap. <laughs> so when I realize that God can use any person at any time in his age, he can use all of us. We're the body. We need each other. Amen. And if you don't believe me, just ask Liam. He's got a ministry growing that I'm so thrilled about. And he can tell you a lot more than I can. Thank you. Mike, thank you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your presence, and we're so grateful that you abundantly bless us with it. And so, God, as we headed into this time of, of reading your word, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would awaken us, that you'd, we pray against everything opposed to Jesus that would be putting us to sleep or distracting us. Or, Lord, this is your time. We, we pray against the enemy's plans and, and work now in Jesus' name. God, protect us. Open our ears. Drop the scales off our eyes. Help us to see, to feel, to taste what you have for us today. We love you, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, so there's three things that we believe if you are new to our church. First is that there's hope beyond our brokenness, that you and I... We all have a story of being lost. We all have a story of being dead. And now in, with Jesus, we have a story of being found, of being made alive. That's who we are as a church.
So you're welcome just as you are. And God loves you enough to not leave you that way. Isn't that good news? Next, we're called to trust in our risen Savior. And so Mike has trusted Jesus to, to become an elder. And that's a decision that we make each and every day. Trust is a relationship word. That's that word believe or faith in, in the Bible. And it means that I am placing the weight of my life. I'm placing the decisions that I'm going to make into the capable hands of Jesus. And a lot of times trust looks like waiting. And not waiting in fear, waiting with hope. Amen. And we're learning how to do that. Amen? You just keep on saying amen, Steve. <laughs> Finally, we're called to bring restoration for our city, for our community. So God is inviting you, just the way that you are, to make a difference in the life of your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. He has people for you to love. Does anybody have a no-way list? I love no-way lists. Lizard, people in your life, situations in your life that there's no way that they're ever going to change. Make a no-way list. Pray for those people. As you pray for the people on your no-way list, you will see resurrection and miracles take place. So that's what God calls us to do, to bring restoration right where we are. And as Mike made a vow to make a decision to do that, so we too make the same decision each and every day. It goes like this. Read this with me. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus. So here we are in John chapter 6, and um, I'm excited. This, this week, we're going to uh, go over a passage in John chapter 6 um, that is in, very confusing, and the title of this sermon is, Say What? Um, because, the, because that's what, when you read this passage in John chapter 6, you really have no idea uh, what it means. And so I'm excited. We're actually going to, uh, the joy of going through verse by verse in, in, a, in a book of the Bible is you actually get to unpack exactly what it means. So we're in John chapter 6 today. I'm not going to hit every single verse, but you're going to get the gist of why it is this passage is confusing. But if, you, if you're new with us or you forgot where we've been the last six weeks, let me remind you where we are in the Gospel of John. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has 12 main disciples. He's got a group of about 72 disciples that are following him as well, plus all of the crowds, um, thousands upon thousands of people that are following Jesus everywhere. And Jesus is providing free health care and free food. Um, he's providing, these are marvelous programs that Jesus is providing. And so they're following him all across the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus is on a boat, they're walking on the shore. When Jesus has landed in one place like last week, when Jesus went from Capernaum to Bethsaida, they even sailed from Tiberias over the Sea of Galilee to find Jesus because word was getting out through the coconut wireless at that time that there was this guy who could change your life. And so that was Jesus, and everybody was so excited. So last week, Jesus asks the disciples if they want to go on an adventure. He's, he's, he's testing them. And we talked about that word test, how it's not like um, uh, to prove that you're enough, but the word test is really like the word endeavor or adventure. And Jesus is saying, do you want to go on an adventure with me? Not do you want to go on an adventure alone hoping I'll show up, it's, do you want to go with me? 
on an adventure. The life of faith is joining Jesus on his adventure. And so what Jesus is trying to communicate to the gospels last or to the disciples last week is like listen with me we can do a lot of things. So join me in this adventure. And so he asks Philip and Andrew, where's the food for less? Where's the Trader Joe's? We want to buy bread to feed all these people. And Philip and Andrew, they have no idea. They can't even fathom that that's even possible. And so they discount the adventure or the endeavor before it even starts. The only person last week who has enough faith to actually join Jesus on his adventure is, is Andrew's youth group kid. It's the junior hire that says, I'm willing to give up my sack lunch to see what you can do with just Jesus. So Jesus takes these, these uh, couple of loaves of bread and this, and this fish, and he breaks it, and he breasts it, and he gives thanks uh, for it. And then he feeds 5,000 adults, which are more like about 15,000 men, women, and children. That was last week. And so Jesus is trying to help the disciples to understand that everlasting and abundant life only comes when we start trusting and then including Jesus in everything that we do. You picking up what Jesus is putting down. Life is not designed for you to go it alone. And so immediately after this big event, Jesus goes off to pray. And the disciples, of course, since they've learned this lesson, what do they do? They, they get into the boat. They leave without Jesus. And so then the storm starts raging, and they're freaking out. And then they're even more freaking out when Jesus is walking on water towards them. And finally, after the panic attack reaches its crescendo, one of them, some of them, a bunch of them become willing, yes, Jesus, you can step into my boat. And when they do, the seas calms and they arrive where they're supposed to be. They arrive at home and it feels like an instant. And here's the point. Look, we're always going to face storms in our life. We're always going to face a need in our life with Jesus. We'll have what we need. Being a follower of Jesus. Now, is Jesus saying that if you're a follower of him, that you'll get free ciabatta bread at all times? No. Is Jesus saying that if you follow him, you'll now have the ability to walk on water? No. Jesus is using what's called a metaphor. And the metaphor is that he is the source of our life, just like bread. That Jesus can calm the chaos and death that we're facing just like he can walk on water. Now, he did those miracles to prove that he's capable of handling everything that's in your life. So Jesus and his disciples are now back in Capernaum. So they've gone west, Bethsaida is to the east. They've gone west back to this little tiny town of Capernaum. This is where Jesus has his carpentry shop and his business. This is where Andrew and Simon and James and John, they have their fishing businesses. And the crowds have followed, but now it's Saturday. And on Saturday, Saturday's the Sabbath. And so Saturday is when you go to church or to synagogue. And so the setting of this conversation that Jesus is going to have is in church. And it's in synagogue, and the church is smaller than this building is here. 
So Jesus would have been able to see everybody. Jesus would have been able to hear everybody. Jesus knew everybody's name that was in the building. He grew up with most of them. They knew him forever. Everybody can touch each other, smell each other. You pick it up, put them putting down. Is an intimate setting. Here we go. John chapter 6, farting, starting. Did I just say farting? I did. I'm sure there was some of that happening in the synagogue as well. Unbelievable. Actually, very believable. It's unbelievable that that hasn't happened sooner. So, farting in verse 25, let's read this together. Ready? Here we go. When they found him on the other side of the lake, So in verse 66 or 65, we'll learn that all of this took place in the synagogue, but they're in the synagogue. So Jesus is in the synagogue. Now they're asking him, when did you get here? So clearly they're impressed. They know that Jesus' boat is back in Bethsaida. They're wondering, did you swim really fast? Do you own a flux capacitor? Do you have a teleportation device? Like what's going on here? How did you get here so fast? But Jesus, actually, that's not the question that they're asking. And Jesus is going to immediately prove it. Verse 26, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. So why are they all there? Why have they gone to follow Jesus? They want more free food. Now, that's understandable. Food is expensive, especially in the ancient world. Food took a lot more time. There was no drive throughs back in the day, okay? Um, in ancient Rome, a soldier during Jesus' time made 1,200 denarii a month. So if you understand denarii as dollars, it's roughly a rough equivalent of dollars. But the issue was, is back in the Roman days, 1,200 denarii, Dollars didn't, or denarii, didn't buy as, um, as much as it does today. Food was very, very expensive. If you wanted to buy a fish, that was 25 denarii. If you wanted to buy a half a pound of beef, that was 8 to 15 denarii, depending on the quality. If you wanted to buy some sort of drink that wouldn't make you sick, so that would be a wine or a beer, um, because these are fermented drinks, right? Because they hadn't figured out how to get rid of Giardia in the water. Um, then that would cost you between 8 and 15 denarii. Well, if you're doing the math, and you ha have about 40 denarii a day, you have about just as much money to eat each day. That's what you can afford each day. Now, if you were super well off, or if you were kind of above middle class, you could also afford one candle. Because remember, when the sun goes down, you don't flip on a light switch. So to buy one hour of light at night cost four hours of an average person's daily wage. One hour of light a night cost four hours of a person's daily wage. 
I can make my meter at PG&E go and it costs 27 cents a kilowatt hour. 27 cents a kilowatt hour, which means I can turn on every light in my house and I can let that run for eight hours solid and that will cost me a buck sixty. So to have enough money to eat and buy one hour's worth of light at night meant you were doing pretty darn good back in the day. That's not poverty. That's middle class. So when someone offers you free food, you better believe it's understandable that people are going to come from far and wide wondering, not only is Jesus going to provide me a, a health and heal my body, which I can't afford to go to the doctor to fix, and when I do, they're just going to bleed me and it's not going to work. And will Jesus provide me free food today? Is it going to be pretzel bread? Is it going to be churros? Is it going to be ciabatta? Pumpernickel? We don't know. It's going to be good. Right? So it's understandable. But Jesus isn't interested in being the first Walmart in history. He's trying to give us something that is going to satisfy us more than a meal. And so Jesus continues to speak to the person who asked the question and then to the crowd as a whole. Verse 27. Let's read this together. Do not work for food that spoils which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life. I think it's very poignant and interesting that Jesus is saying, look, you're going to work for something. Work is a part of life. You will pursue the good life whether you want to admit it or not. Amen? That's why all of you live on the Central Coast. We've made it, y'all. I was talking to Danny last week. Danny and Gary have escaped the Bay Area. Oh! I was talking with Lisa and Travis. They've come. They've escaped Los Angeles, right? It's like that old Kurt Russell movie, Escape from New York, right? It's like they made it out, you know? And, and we've come here. How many of us have escaped the Central Valley. <laughs> oh, hallelujah, right? We've made it. We're here. And we're working towards the good life. We want the good life. And what Jesus is saying is, look, work for food that will work for something that's actually going to satisfy you. Now, no matter how rich we are, I mean, we've created an amazing technology with our food. It doesn't matter how rich you are, if you buy food, it will still spoil even Twinkies. Okay? So Jesus is saying something really profound. Work for something that actually gives you life that wells up within you. Work for something that is going to satisfy you. Oh, and by the way, the eternal life that you want is actually a gift I want to give you. Now, Hold on to that paradox for a moment, because when Jesus uttered these words, everybody in the congregation, they, they weren't really listening. And 
I want you to, to not be like them. Okay? Hold, hold these two, hold this intention just for a moment. Jesus has eternal life for you right now. It's a gift. And it also has, in, involves this thing called work. Let me help you understand that tension. So you don't earn eternal life. You, you receive eternal life as a gift. And this eternal life starts right now. It lasts for all eternity, but it starts right now. So when you receive a gift, there actually requires you to be engaged. Uh, I love giving gifts to my son Jonah, who's in high school. What the heck? I love giving gifts to my son Jonah, but April always warns me at Christmas time, look, this is too many gifts. This is way too many gifts. And I'm like, it's not, baby. We only have 36. Like, it's okay. And she's like, no, no. Like, we've got to narrow it down because there is this certain point when Jonah is playing with all of his new gifts that he has. And then there's a certain point when you set a new gift in front of him. And because he's one year old, he's one intellectually, he's one, he'll actually just knock that new gift out of the way because he's busy playing with the gift I just gave him. He doesn't have the capacity to receive the new gift. He's more interested in the rain stick I just bought for him right? So when we receive a gift, there's actually something that you and I have to do. It requires our engagement. It requires us being attentive. It requires us having empty hands to receive that gift. Amen? That's the work Jesus is talking about. Work to receive that which I'm giving you. Work to, to let go of the thing that you're hoping will satisfy you so that you can receive the good gift that I have for you. That requires your engagement, your intellectual, your, your spiritual, your emotional engagement with Jesus. Okay, now this is difficult because you and I, when we think about the good life, here's what I think about the good life. I think about going on vacation and turning my brain off. I asked Levi, my, our, our, our sixth grader, I said, Levi, I need your help. And he looked at me and he drooled a little bit. And I said, Levi, hello, Levi. And he goes, oh, sorry. I turned my brain off. <laughs> and it was this really funny moment. It was like, how long have you had your brain off? And he said, the moment I left school, I turned my brain off. And I said, what do you mean you turn your brain off? He goes, I'm just refusing to think. It's hard, too, because I can't figure some things out. But I'm okay with that. And it was like, man, that's childhood. Like, that's the ultimate vacation, right? It's like, what day is it? Who cares? What time is it? I forgot. What's time? I don't know, right? How do you load the dishwasher? It doesn't matter. I'm on vacation. And that's what we think is kind of like the good life. Like when we go on vacation, oh man, I'm going to retire and I'm going to turn my brain off. I'm no longer going to think. I don't want a key. I don't want responsibility. I don't want to do anything. I just want to like veg out and numb. That's all I want to do. And here's the thing about that perspective. That's not really life. 
that's, that's called hospice care. And, and Jesus has abundant life for you. And the thing about life is that it's alive. It's like living. It has ups and downs and feelings, and it requires all of your engagement. Jesus is not saying, I have eternal life, which is just turning your brain off and being numb. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I have, well, it's the thing that you and I desperately want. It's a heart fully alive. It's relationships that are vital and go down to the deepest and most holy moments. It's intimacy. It's connection. It's a life of meaning and purpose. And that requires all of you to be engaged. Does that make sense? Okay. So verse 28. So Jesus says, don't work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life. And they ask him a very good question. Read this question with me. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the work that God requires? This is a very good question. And this is a very Jewish question. And, and, and bear with me here just for a moment because I want to explain something really important for you to understand this whole passage today. Directions are very important. In fact, specific directions, this is what the Jews are asking, specific directions are very important. Um, a shared experience that the Jews all had together was that four or five times a year they would go up to Jerusalem. So they'd travel from here to Santa Barbara, about 90 miles, and, and they would go to the temple and they would offer a sacrifice. And when you offered a sacrifice, that required a very specific set of instructions, and you didn't mess those instructions up. It was a life or death thing. So when you offered a guilt offering or an atonement offering, it had to be a lamb or a goat. You couldn't offer a pigeon. But if you had a Thanksgiving offering, if you were just giving thanks to God, that could be a pigeon. If you were offering a peace offering where, you, peace offering where you'd experience peace with God, in peace with one another, then that required a specific set of instructions. Um, you, some parts would be burnt, some parts the priests would eat, some parts you would eat. Guilt offerings, atonement offerings, you would not eat any of it. It would all get burned up. So specific instructions are really important to the Jewish way of thinking, so it's understandable that they would ask for specific instructions. You with me? Okay, so... Jesus answered, I'm going to give you specific instructions. Here it is. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So what's the specific instructions? Believe in the one God has sent. So Jesus is going like this. Believe, believe in me. Trust in me. Trust that God the Father has sent me to give you eternal life. And so then this is where this conversation just veers right off the road and off the cliff. Verse 30, so they asked him, well, how are you going to prove it? What sign will you give that we may see that you're the one that God has sent and then believe you? What will you do? <clears throat> hint, hint, by the way, our ancestors ate manna um, in the wilderness. That's free bread, Jesus. Um, as it is written, and they gave him scripture, um, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. <clears throat> At this point, Jesus is, 
I don't know if his head has exploded. I don't know if he's, his hair is on fire or if he's ripping it out. I don't know if he's frustrated. I don't know if he's banging his head against the wall. None of that is written in the Greek. But, but here's how the conversation has gone so far, right? Jesus gives everybody free bread. They show up and they say, um, uh, when did you get here? And Jesus says to them, um, you're not really here for me. You just want free bread. And they say, oh, no, no, no. Uh, we, no, no, that's not. And Jesus says, it's okay. Listen, uh, uh, it, free bread's fine, but I want to give you something that will really satisfy you. And they say, okay, well, we want that. And Jesus says, I want to give you eternal life. And, and my, my heavenly Father has given me to you. And when you trust me, that's eternal life. And they say, okay, um, please give us more bread. <laughs> That's how the conversation has gone so far. Now, look, starvation isn't a joke. So we can have some compassion on this group of people. Um, people in Venezuela right now, 18 months of the crisis in their country, on average, each person in Venezuela has lost 19 pounds. It's not, they didn't want to lose 19 pounds. They just lost 19 pounds because of the reduction of calories that they can get access to. You can't think, you can't create, you can't grow, you can't flourish if you're malnourished, if you're starving. The greatest need in every society in history was to feed its people. Um, when the French aristocracy was rigging the system so that they were wealthy and the vast majority of the French people were basically starving to death in 1789 when French, France won its independence as Bastille Day, they, the first law that they passed was that they would make bread cheap and almost free so that even a beggar could afford it. If you go to France this day, they're using the same strains of yeast from 1780s. It's absolutely spectacular. It's cheap. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. Go to France. It's not like French bread that you buy at Vons. That's a joke. But bread in France is incredible. Why? Because they learned the lesson that they didn't want anybody to starve. When we went through the Great Depression in this country in the 1920s and 30s, um, people stood in line. Do you remember what that line was called? It was called the bread line. And that's because people were hungry and starving and they needed to eat. And so churches and the government would stand in that bread line. And so after the 1930s, the reason why Roosevelt won his fourth term was that he created this new deal. And the new deal was this, you're not going to starve anymore. So when my dad left my mom, um, basically destitute, in poverty, unemployed with two children, my mom and we would go to the store in Seattle, Washington, and we could pick out food, and that food was free, and that was called black label food. Do you remember that? It came in a white box, and it had black lettering on it, and it said stuff like cereal. Like, that was it. Like, cheese. What kind? We don't know. Soup. Right? And it didn't matter. You were going to eat that food and you were going to have your belly full. And so our country accomplished a goal. Check. No one goes hungry anymore. In fact, now we have the opposite problem. Amen? Right? We're bordering on obesity as a country. See, but here's the thing. Even if a country doesn't have starving people, that doesn't mean that those starving people are now going to be satisfied with their life. I love what Jim Carrey, the author and comedian, uh, wrote. He says this. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of. 
so that they can see it's not the answer. And of course, Jim, you know, Jesus knows what Jim Carrey knows, right? And he's trying to teach this crowd, it's Jesus, Brenda, quick, answer it. I love you. Shane's mom is in the hospital. Well, let's pray. Jesus, we pray for Shane and Kathleen's mom who's in the hospital. Lord, help her. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is trying to teach this crowd while they're in church that he's offering more than a meal. He's offering them a spiritual meal that's going to satisfy their soul. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then now, everybody in the church is on the edge of their seat. Everybody get on the edge of your seat, quick. Ready? Ready? I mean, this is it. Like, this is the crescendo. This is it. Here we go. And they say, say it loudly, y'all. Is it pumpernickel or pretzel bread? Is it sourdough or white? I don't care what it is. Just always give us this bread. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh, how can I make this more clear? And so he says it to them very slowly, very carefully. Here it is. I am the bread of life. It's me, y'all. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus is the bread of life. Yet how often do we consume everything but Him in the hopes of being satisfied? Jesus is the source of all life. Bread gives, your life, bread gives you life in your body for a couple of hours. Unless you're Mike, who's allergic to gluten, then it's death to you. Jesus gives you abundant, never-ending life in your spirit, the very core of who you are. And your spirit, your heart, will always be restless, as, Blaise, as Augustine would say, that my heart is restless until I find my rest in thee. No amount of food or success or status or perfection or money or rebellion or adoration from others will satisfy your spirit. Why? Because Jesus formed your spirit. When he knit you together in your mother's womb, you're literally designed to find your rest, your peace, your satisfaction, your purpose, your deepest joy only with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, Listen, I'm here to nourish you. Just like bread nourishes you, I'm here to nourish you. And this is an incredible invitation. Incredible invitation. I'm the bread of life. I'm here to nourish you. Let's read. Because the crowds, they're just going to get it. And they're finally going to understand. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus? This kid mowed my lawn. 
Him and Joseph, they rebuilt my deck. It's still not level. He's saying he's God? Like, he had pimples like the rest of us. Like, I grew up. You were in my graduating class, Jesus. I beat you at basketball. Come on. Like, you're not, like, what the heck is going on here? Like, what do you mean you're God? What do you mean? Grumble, grumble, grumble. And this is a moment of real irony because the moment that God gives Israel bread every single day that shows up on the ground in the morning and can be broken off like big flakes of of gorgeous bread, they, the, the Jews, they grumble, and they grumble, 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 and they, and they go, what the heck is this? Which in Hebrew is translated, manah? That manah means, what the heck is this? Ma- manna? It's a Hebrew word that means, what the heck is this? Grumble, grumble, grumble. So Jesus is like, verse 43, stop grumbling. Stop grumbling among yourselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. And he's, at this point, it's painful. Look, I'm not lying, y'all. If you believe in me, you have eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yes, yet they died. Verse 50, read it with me. But... Jesus is going like this. Here is the bread of heaven that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the... He's, he's searching for a way to, for you to get it, for us to get it. I'm, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread... And now he changes analogies. This bread is my flesh... Say, say what? This, verse 52. Wait a minute. Are you asking us to be a cannibal, Jesus? They are, verse, next verse. Then the Jews begin to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? What is he talking about? Harry Truman said, if you can't convince them, confuse them. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Right? But surely Jesus will clarify what he's going to say. Next verse, verse 53 or 60. Um, the disciples, Jesus reiterates it in the next verses. Listen, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, and the disciples are like, say what? One of them pulls him aside like, hey, man, like this is a really hard teaching. Like, I don't, I don't want to eat you, Jesus. Like, who can accept it? And that makes sense. Let's look at verse 53. This is the most offensive verse in the entire passage. And we're going to explain this here for two minutes, and then we'll be done. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, read this with me, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Everybody say, Say what? What in the world is going on here? My wife actually helped me understood this. My wife this last year has read through the Old Testament in our morning quiet times together. I've been going through the New. She's been going through the Old. And during her time in the book of Leviticus, she started understanding and 
about the different offerings and sacrifices. And so as we were preparing for this sermon and I was telling her about it, she said, you know, this kind of reminds me of the different kinds of offerings. And I was like, wait a minute, say more. And so it was my wife who helped me understand this. So give credit to where credit is due. Thank you, baby. I love, I love that. So, so let's, let's first rule out some options. Number one, Jesus is not advocating for cannibalism. Number two, Jesus is not saying, I need you to literally kill me and literally barbecue me and eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's not what Jesus is saying. Can we all agree on that? Okay, so let's affirm what Jesus is doing. Jesus is using a metaphor. Amen? So... What's the common experience that all Jews have together when they actually eat flesh? It's during the sacrifices. It's during the high holy days when they go to Jerusalem. That's the one experience that they can all have together when they're at a barbecue and, they're, and blood is near and they're eating flesh. They're eating meat. Now, there is only one offering in the Jewish sacrificial system in which you eat what you offer. Everything else is given to the priests or is burned up on the altar. In the only moment, the only offering which you eat is the peace offering. After you've been forgiven, after you've, your guilt has been washed away, you take a lamb or a goat or a bird and you place it on the altar and it's barbecued and the priest eats part of it and you eat part of it and in that moment you taste this truth that at that very moment you're forgiven, you're adopted, You belong to God. You're at peace with God. And it's at that moment that you can say, it is finished. That's the last offering that you give. So check this out. This peace offering, it unites you to God. You're at peace with God. You experience or taste this peace by eating the part of your offering, and it's the last one. So this is what Jesus is saying as you, he says, I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's saying, I am your peace offering. He's saying this, as you trust me, as you look to me, I will be the peace offering you eat to nourish your soul, to remind you that you are forgiven, loved, and reconciled to your heavenly Father. I will die as your sacrifice, as your peace offering. You won't sacrifice an animal to remember that your sin separates you from God. My flesh will be ripped and torn so that you don't have to endure that pain of your rebellion. When you eat my flesh, you will understand that you are now reconciled with God and how much I love you. Read this with me. Jesus is saying to you, you used to sprinkle blood on the altar during the peace offering to symbolize that your sins are covered and paid for. Now I want you to drink deeply a greater truth. 
My blood will be shed so that you are completely forgiven. I am your peace offering. And so it is finished. And so each communion Sunday, what do we do? We take the bread and we break it and we say, this is Jesus' body broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. And we take the cup of grape juice and we say, this cup is the new covenant, which is the blood of Jesus. Drink in remembrance of me. And what we're saying is, is Jesus, only you can bring me peace. Only you can reconcile me to my heavenly Father, and I need to taste and experience that deep within my spirit. I'll close with this. I was in Philadelphia. I'm a hospital chaplain. And somebody asked me to come to their room. And so I said, okay, I'll come to your room. And I show up, and um, there is a young man, and he's handcuffed to his bed. And there's a police detective, and he's sitting there reading his newspaper, and he looks at me, and he looks at my badge, and he says, okay, sit down. And I said to the guy, so how can I help you? I'm, I'm, I'm Chaplain Andy, and, and I'm here to help you. And I didn't have a beard, and I, I was 28 years old, and I looked about 16. And so, but I had a suit on, and that, that, that helped. Um, and so the guy looks at me, and he, and he looks at my tag, and he says, okay. And he says, well, I, I'm kind of confused, Pastor. I don't know. He actually called me Father. He said, I'm confused, Father. I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm a Muslim or if I'm a Christian. I said, oh, okay. Well, so, like, how did this, how did this confusion happen? And he says, well, I was buying drugs from my drug dealer. So my girlfriend, she's my drug dealer. Well, she's not kind of my girlfriend. Anyway, she's my drug dealer. So I was buying drugs from her. And the popo rolls up on us, and she just starts going nuts and starts shooting at the cops. And so we run into the building, and then they're shooting at us. And at this point, the, the police officer, he's got his paper, and he goes, <clears throat> and he's reading his newspaper, and he folds it down, and he looks over, and he goes, that is not how it happened. If you're going to talk to the pastor, you have to at least tell the truth. And the guy looks at the police officer, and he looks at me, and he goes, fine. And the police officer goes, they were transacting a drug deal. He had stolen property, which he was trying to sell for drugs. At that point, they both opened fire on the police officers who drove up on the street as part of the regular beat. They ran into the house. Six more police officers showed up. They fired 900 rounds into the building. These two knuckleheads fired rounds back. Gratefully, this idiot was the only one who got shot. At that point, the police officer shakes his paper out and keeps on reading. <laughs> And I look at the guy, and I'm like, is this true? And he kind of goes, yeah. <laughs> and I said, you know, at this point, I realized my mouth is open, and, you know, and, you know, I'm 14 years old at this point. I've never had any experience like this. And so I closed my mouth, and I said, so, so tell me, where, where was the confusion and about whether or not you're a Muslim or a Christian? Like, I'm not sure how this all relates. And he goes, well, you know, I'm a Muslim. I've been a Muslim for a long time, but, but when I was in the, in, in the house and bullets were flying all around and they're traveling along walls and they're zipping over my head and I got shot and I'm screaming on the ground and I'm rolling around and my girlfriend keeps on yelling at me and she's yelling at me and yelling at me and I said, well, what is, what is she yelling at you? And she, he said, that's the thing, I couldn't hear, I couldn't hear until finally I could hear and she's screaming at me and she's screaming, why are you praying to Jesus? I thought you were a Muslim. Which is an odd conversation to have when like 900 bullets are going into the, into the front of the house. And, and he kind of 
blinked. And, he, and then he said to me, he said, what I realized, Pastor, what I realized, Father, was I, was, I, was, I, I kept on screaming, Jesus, save me, Jesus, save me. And so I don't know, am I a Muslim or am I a Christian? And I said, well, who do you think can save you? Who do you think can bring you peace? Who do you think can reconcile you to your heavenly Father and to forgive you? Is it going to be Allah or is it going to be Jesus? And he said, I think it's Jesus. And I said, well, do you want to invite him into your life right now? Do you want to trust him? Do you want to look upon him and say, Jesus, you're my Savior? And he says, yeah. And at this point, the cop, he folded down his newspaper and he looked at the guy and he's just like, oh, my gosh. And this gentleman, this young man, started praying, and he started confessing sins. And by the end of that time praying, the cop was in tears. And then this young man said something I'll never forget. He said, Father, could I have communion? Because he was going to go to prison. He knew that. But in that moment, he wanted one thing. He wanted to taste God's love. He wanted to ingest Jesus, inside, is a way to remember that Jesus is with him and will give him life. Feed on God. Plant your roots deep into who he is. Let him be your nourishment this week. You are not designed to live your life apart from him. Find your greatest hope and peace in him. Amen? Amen? Lord Jesus, I pray for each one of my friends here today. I pray that you would fill them with your spirit. How wonderful, how marvelous you are, Lord Jesus, for dying in our place. You're amazing, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, bless and seal and, and just root in every good word that you've said here into the hearts of my friends. Bless them. Seal them in, Jesus. Protect them from the enemy's discouragement today. And all God's people said, Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance. That's his delight in you and give you the peace that passes all understanding. And all God's people said,